Amen. Well, if you would, brothers and sisters, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, and we will pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 8. First Timothy chapter 3, we'll read verses 8 through 13. This is the Word of God. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their homes and their own, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we need the help of Your Spirit. Please empower us to receive Your Word and do what You want to do in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last week, uh, in this chapter, we studied verses 1-7 through in 1 Timothy 3, and we took up the very important subject of the essential characteristics for biblical, uh, biblically qualified overseers. And while uh, much more could have been said, uh, we briefly got into the primary function of elders and overseers, or to use the term that is common today, pastors. And this morning uh, will, in some regard, be a part two to that discussion, uh, not because we're going to study the uh, office of overseer more fully, uh, but because we are going to study the second of two divinely sanctioned offices that the Lord Jesus has given to His church until He returns, namely deacons. And the way that the Apostle Paul lays these two offices sort of side by side and deals with them in a very identical manner in this chapter shows us just how connected these two offices are in his mind and how they function in the church. Uh, we see this also again in Philippians 1, and I read this last week, but I want to read it again because I think it is just vital for us to get our heads around Paul's thinking on this topic uh, and Paul, again, is operating under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so his thoughts, his vision for the church is the Holy Spirit's thoughts and vision for the church. Uh, and we see in this passage uh, that the church of Jesus Christ in local assemblies will be governed by a plurality of qualified elders, or what we might call an eldership or an or a council of elders, and served by a plurality of deacons, or what we might call a diaconate, or a board, or a group of deacons who serve as a unit. And here it is in Philippians 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, so he's talking to the whole church in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, and deacons. So he's talking to the whole church, all the saints, but he makes that distinction with the overseers, plural, 
and deacons, plural. Now, this is important. Uh, Healthy churches that are structured after the apostolic design in most circumstances uh, will be governed spiritually and led by biblically qualified elders, and they will be served practically by a plurality of biblically qualified deacons. And while uh, the office of elder is by nature an office of rule, and authority, the office of deacon, is by nature an office of service, of ministry. Uh, The word itself reveals this. Uh, The word deacon simply means to serve. And we have uh, all throughout the New Testament that word in different forms, the verb form and the plural forms of that word, being translated all throughout the New Testament simply servant, to serve, to minister ministry in these types of words. And so it seems that as the early church developed, uh, we see uh, what we saw in Acts 6 that I'll get into in a moment. What we see there in Acts 6 develops as the church progresses into an official office of men that by the early 60s AD, the Apostle Paul is calling the office of deacon. And he gives... Uh, the qualifications for these deacons in the same chapter and juxtaposed with, side by side, the qualifications for overseers. And so what's going on here? Uh, Well, the closeness with which the Apostle Paul treats the office of elder and the office of deacon suggests that the apostolic vision for these offices imply a great deal of uh, uh, reciprocity between the two offices. Uh, There's a closeness between the two offices. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, though the office of deacon is separate from the office of elder, and though deacons are not JV elders, which is how, sadly, they function in a lot of churches, the diaconate does not exist off on its own somewhere, completely separate from the elders. And it does not exists to provide accountability to the elders. And it certainly does not exist to hire and fire pastors in the church. These things are simply just not the function that God has given to the diaconate. Rather, when functioning properly, the diaconate is an extension to the ministry of the eldership or of the ministry of the eldership. Albert Martin who I confess has been very influential on my thinking regarding these topics, says this. He gives a very helpful illustration. He says, the deacons are an extension of the mind, the heart, and the hands of the overseers. The deacons are an extension of the mind and the heart and the hands of the overseers. It is ultimately the elders who stand responsible before Christ for the health of the church. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Or translated, they are keeping the rule over you. And then he says, As those who will have to give an account. And the New Testament just simply does not speak of deacons as having this kind of ruling responsibility or giving an account before Christ for the church. Uh, We see this even in this text this morning. 
uh, look at the different way in which Paul speaks about the overseer's ability to manage their home and the, and the qualification for the way that the, de- that the deacons are to be able to manage their home. In verses 4 and 5, the apostle says about elders, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then this is interesting, for if someone does not know how to manage in his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so it's implied there, elders will have to manage in the church. They will have to give rule in the church. And so his home is a testing ground to see if he is competent to manage the church. Yet in verse 12, on deacons, Paul simply says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. But he doesn't give that qualifier about managing in the church. I think suggesting that the office itself does not come with an authority to rule and govern in the body. Listen to John Owen on the topic of deacons. He says this, This office of deacons is an office of service which gives not any authority or power in the rule of the church, but listen, but being an office, it gives authority with respect unto the special work of it. Under a general notion of authority, that is, a right to attend unto it in a peculiar manner and to perform the things that belong thereunto. So Owen is saying the nature of the office of deacon does not come with any ruling or governing authority. But because it is an office, an official office in the church, it will by necessity have some level of authority and leadership. And this is one of the primary reasons as we reconsidered this issue uh, that we suggested moving toward a male-specific diaconate uh, because we, uh, we were bothered by the prospect of having times where even implicitly uh, deaconesses would be in a position where they would be giving authority or exercising authority over men. And so, while the office of deacon is not an office of authority, it does assume some level of authority and leadership, even if only with respect to the, to the practical needs of the church. And we see this very clearly in Acts chapter 6. You just can't talk about deacons without getting into Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, in the early days of the church, as the church is growing rapidly and the Spirit is working powerfully, you have a situation arise where apparently widows whose first language was not Hebrew, but Greek, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so a complaint arose in the church. And guess whose ear the complaint comes to? The apostles. And so what they do, uh, and, and here's the thing, the apostles care about widows being fed. They care about that. That's important to them. They don't say, look, Uh, This isn't our responsibility. We're just called to preach. You guys go figure all this out. We'll be back next week to preach. That's not what they do. They recognize it is their responsibility to ensure that all the widows are fed. It is their responsibility to care for the poor and to make sure the the poor are being cared for in the church. But they realize 
that it is not God's will for them or best for the church that they give all of their time or even a large portion of their time to caring for such practical matters. Peter says in verse 2 in Acts 6, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. It's not that the apostles are above serving tables. Uh, Elders will have to do things that fall outside of their job description in the church. That's inevitable. The apostles are not above serving tables, but what he's saying is it would be sinful for us to neglect the divinely given calling to preach the Word to the church in exchange for serving tables. Rather, uh, they see their primary calling from God, their service, their ministry, is to minister the Word. To preach and teach the Word. And to pray for the church. And he goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And listen, whom we will appoint to this duty. You hear the relationship there between the apostles and the seven men that were chosen. Whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will, he says, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, to the deaconing of the Word. And this is really important. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. The whole church was able to see with spiritual eyes It is not good if the apostles are not consumed with prayer. It's not good for us. It's not good for our children. It's not good for the church. We want these men that have been called by God, called by the Spirit, we want them giving themselves to prayer and to the Word. And it it was good in their eyes. It pleased them. That's how they can best serve us. And if they're consumed with distributing food to widows, we are going to suffer. And I don't want to come off, brothers and sisters, as arrogant or judgmental, but most of us in this, in this room have sat under weak and superficial prayerless preaching. And it affects you after a while. It affects your soul. It affects your family. And it affects the church. This is a reality. I mean, you just see the wisdom of God in this design. It's healthy. It's good. It's a blessing to the elders and a blessing to the church. Martin again argues that the diaconate's very existence reveals that God cares about the whole person. He doesn't just care if we have right theology. He cares if widows are fed. He cares that the poor are cared for. He cares that our lawn looks nice. He cares about the whole person, not just our theology. However, at the same time, the diaconate's existence reveals the supremacy and the centrality that God places on the Word and prayer in the church. It's vital. The fact that God gave the church the diaconate for the purpose of freeing up the ministers to serve the church through prayer and through ministering the Word shows us just how vital those things are. They're they're the engine that drive the church in health. And if those things fall, the whole church is going to fall apart. And it may look good on the outside. It may run well. It may look like it's functioning well. But the spiritual health of that church, if prayer goes, 
and the ministry of the Word goes, it will die. And it will apostatize. You know, this is one of the things that I respect most about Pastor John Mark. You know, he sees his chief responsibility as a pastor is to week in and week out labor in this book and to preach to you the Word. And I have seen him week after week after week push away all kinds of things on a Thursday and a Friday that seem dire and seem important and seem like they need to be attended to because he has a conviction that says God has called me first and foremost to minister the Word to the flock. He gets it. He understands what God has called him to do as an overseer. We saw last week, uh, the elders are given as gifts by Christ to the church to serve her by exercising oversight, by shepherding the flock, by studying and teaching the Word, and according to Acts 6, through prayer. And so when we really think through this with the mind of the Spirit, uh, we see that the primary way the deacons serve the church is by serving the elders. By freeing up the elders. Through freeing them up as much as possible to give themselves to prayer, to the Word, to shepherding. That's how the church is going to be most blessed. Ron actually said something similar to this in our last deacons meeting, and it's been just in my mind as he said it, and I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially said this, the way I understand serving as a deacon is how I can free up the elders to do what God's called them to do. That's that's what being a deacon is. That's the way I understand God's call for me is to free up the elders to be able to pray, to be able to minister the Word, to be able to meet with sheep. That's how I can best serve the church. Because guys, the specific scenarios are going to change. Uh, We don't have a big uh, challenge right now with with feeding widows. Uh, That's not a massive need right now in our church. But we do have a property to upkeep. Uh, And we do have bills that need to be paid. We do have doors that need to be locked and unlocked. We do have all sorts of needs. We have communion elements that need to be uh, prepared. We have money that needs to be distributed and taken to the bank and kept up with. These are ongoing needs of the church. Benevolence needs to be distributed. We could go on and on. And whose shoulders does that ultimately fall on? Ultimately. It's the elders. It's the overseers of the church. They are the ones called to govern and lead the church. And they are the ones that will give an account to Christ. Therefore, Because that is true, when functioning in biblical health, the church will raise up and appoint godly men as deacons to bear those burdens, to carry out those duties so that the elders can be occupied with the Word as much as possible. You know, we hear all the time about pastoral burnout. You heard this? Uh, Pastors are leaving the church, leaving, uh, leaving the ministry at all-time highs, and they're depressed and all of this. And I I don't want to make light of that. Uh, There are very peculiar challenges in pastoral ministry that do lead to serious discouragement. But I have often struggled to sympathize with the whole notion of pastoral burnout. Because when I look at what pastors are called to do, and I look at our lives and I just say, we are the most blessed among men. We, we make a living off of spending hours in prayer. We, we 
serve the Word. We study theology. We, we labor with the sheep. We help struggling sheep. We lead the church in public worship. Everything we do leads to edification and growth and health. How are pastors getting so burnt out? But it occurred to me that in America, most churches are not functioning biblically in regard to their elders and their deacons. And so many pastors are not functioning biblically. And so they're off doing a million other things that their church expects them to do that fall out of the category of the word and prayer. And they have to prepare a sermon. And they're supposed to meet for pastoral visits. And they're supposed to visit the sick. And they're supposed to pray. And all these other things. And so they get burnt out. And they get weary. And they leave the ministry. And deacons in many churches function either as pseudo-elders or, I think even worse, they are the real shot callers in the church. And if anything is going to happen in the church, the deacons have to approve it. And so while the elders or the pastor may be the one preaching and leading in public worship, the deacons are the ones with their hands on the helm, driving the ship. I mean, guys, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where the overwhelming majority of churches are not functioning the way that God called them to function? Guys, I know a sermon on elders and a sermon on deacons isn't exactly exciting, uh, but these things are vital. How much could it be that the, that the lack of health in so many churches and the lack of powerful witness in the earth is due to the fact that so many churches are not structured after the apostolic design. It is for your benefit, brothers and sisters, and your family's benefit that your pastors be freed up for the God-given responsibilities that He has given them. And it is to your benefit that we have godly, qualified men to serve in the church, not as a check and balance to the elders, but as an extension of their ministry. And by God's grace, He's given us that. And we laid hands on just last week uh, four brothers that are godly, that are qualified, who have already been serving the church faithfully for years. And I'm confident that they will continue to serve faithfully as a diaconate for the years to come. So I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning, much like last week, uh, walking through these qualifications for deacons. Now, a lot of people suggest that the qualifications for the elders and for the deacons are essentially identical, except that the elders are required to teach. And after looking at these texts and thinking uh, more deeply about this over the last few weeks, I, I both agree with that and disagree with that to some degree. And you will see what I mean as we move through these verses. The first essential characteristics for deacons that I want to point out is this. While deacons are not required to be gifted in exercising spiritual leadership or required to be skilled in teaching the Word of God as elders are to be, they must demonstrate godly behavior consistently. They must demonstrate a consistent pattern of godly behavior. Just as Paul says in verse 2, overseers must be above reproach. He says in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. 
likewise, is a transition word that moves Paul out of the qualifications for elders and into the qualifications for deacons. But the word likewise shows similarity. And just as the overwhelming emphasis in the elder qualifications is on their ethical character, not their giftedness or their talent, likewise, the overwhelming emphasis in the deacon qualifications is on ethical character. Deacons must be dignified. Not deacons likewise must be in the top five givers in the church. Deacons must be in the top five longest standing members in the church. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Some of the less formal translations can be helpful here. The NIV says must be worthy of respect. The NLT, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. And so deacons and prospective deacons must be men who live in such a way before the body as to have gained respect from the church and have integrity in the eyes of the church. I mean, you think about the kinds of things deacons will be doing. They're going to have their hands in the church's money. Uh, they're going to be entrusted with sensitive information about people. Uh, they will be responsible for executing and completing tasks that if they don't get done, the church is going to feel it. There's big responsibilities, and so the church can't be second-guessing the deacon's character. Uh, they must be dignified so as to be trustworthy. It's not healthy if the church has a real suspicion that the deacons are laundering its money. Just as Paul builds out what it means for elders to be above reproach, he builds out what it means for deacons to be dignified. He says, not double-tongued. They aren't telling one person one thing and then going and telling another person another thing to save face. They're not being unified with the elders at a, at a deacon's meeting and then going and complaining about the elders to everybody else. They're not devious in speech. They aren't sharing personal information when someone loses a job about people's needs and struggles. They're not addicted to much wine. Their minds are focused on being godly, on doing the work in the church, not on excessive drink, drinking. They're given over to the work, not given over to pursuing alcohol or some other substance. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. Again, the nature of the deacon's work is going to require that their hands be in the church's money. And so, if they're greedy for dishonest gain, they may, like Judas, who had his hands in the money, be tempted by the devil when the opportunity provides itself for dishonest gain to take that money, to do something dishonest with it, and to bring great reproach upon themselves, on their family, on the church, and ultimately on the Lord. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 9 is interesting. He says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so deacons are not required to be skilled in teaching the way elders are. They are not required to be skilled to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. However, they must have a firm grasp on the Gospel of Jesus Christ and not waver in their commitment to it. The mystery of the faith and Pauline writing 
usually has to deal with God's one plan of salvation that the Jews and Gentiles alike will be saved and brought into the church through the coming of Jesus the Messiah, through His atoning substitutionary death on the cross and by His rising from the dead, deacons must hold to this Gospel with a clear conscience. They can't be always deconstructing their faith, wondering if it happened or not. Always wavering in their beliefs. They have to hold to it strong. They cling to the Gospel unashamedly with a clear conscience. There's no second guessing. And their line of work will put them with non-believers a lot. And so when they share the Gospel, they need to believe this is the Gospel that will save you. Believe it. Cling to it. Hold to it. Be saved. There's a clear conscience with regard to the Gospel in the message of salvation. Verse 10, he says, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so both elders and deacons must be tested and assessed before they get the office. But especially for deacons, uh, it's almost going to be like they are deacons before they get the office. They're going to already be serving. They're going to already be bearing burdens. They're going to already show us a competency and a skill for doing certain things so that when we ordain them through the laying on of hands, we're just making official before God and before the church what these brothers have already been doing. And if they're tested and they prove to be faithful, the church anoint, uh, lays hands on them and sets them aside as deacons. They must demonstrate godly behavior for an extended period of time before being appointed to the office. Paul says in 5.22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, verse 11 gets a little tricky. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So Paul here clearly introduces a third category of people. Again, verse 2, an overseer must be, and then he gives a list of qualifications. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be, gives a list of qualifications. And here at verse 11, their wives or women likewise must be. And he gives a list of qualifications. And the first one is dignified. And so this construction that Paul uses has led not just liberal kind of feminist scholars, but conservative godly men who have a high view of Scripture to look at this and say, Paul is introducing a third office, namely deaconess an office with equal authority to the male deacons called deaconess or deaconesses. And I will confess that I'm not totally certain at this point who I believe these, women's are, these women are, but I am confident in my mind as I have thought about this a lot over the last few months that Paul is not introducing a third office of female deacons or deaconesses. So I wrote a position paper on this. If you would like to have that, let me know. I'm not going to get into all those arguments this morning, but I think I can rest my case on the very next verse. Verse 12, 
let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, I know we live in a twisted age where women can be husbands and men can be wives. Paul has no category for such evil. And he could have just simply used the feminine word for deacon to make it very clear he does not do this. It seems very clear to me that Paul does not have in mind here the office of deaconess. Uh, So why would Paul, think about this, why would he introduce a new office called deaconess only to in the very next verse go back to the second office and begin to give more qualifications? That's what he's doing here. He, He says in verse 11, let women likewise be or women must likewise be. And then verse 12, let deacons, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So why would he give a new office of deaconess and then just begin to give more qualifications for the deacons? It, it just simply makes no sense. So, who then are the women in verse 11? I think there are two plausible options. The first is the ESV might be right in their translation. These women might be the wives of the deacons. And so many point out the fact that the word the ESV translates as wives is simply the generic word for women. Uh, guna, gune. That's true. However, the same word is used in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. The same word is used. And clearly, wife is the right choice there in verse 12. And the same word is used all throughout the New Testament to refer sometimes to women, generally, and other times to wives. And so some will argue that don't agree with that view. Why would Paul give qualifications for deacons' wives and not for elders' wives? It would seem to, it seems that if the deacons' wives need to be qualified, the elders' wives definitely need to be qualified. And that's a plausible perspective. However, when we consider the kind of work that deacons primarily do, as opposed to the kind of work that elders primarily do, it makes sense that deacons' wives would need to be especially above reproach in ways that elders' wives might not need to be. Think about it. Uh, Though the elders do have private meetings with people and they do counseling and they visit people and all of this, their oversight is largely from the top down. The elders are in front of the whole body a lot. Uh, They're having administrative type meetings a lot. They're, They're leading from the top down Whereas deacons are getting down into the weeds of everything, ministering in the nitty-gritty, very practical needs of the church. And so, it could make sense, and it makes sense in my mind, that their wives, who are going to be serving along with them in many regards, need to be above reproach. The deacons are going to be cleaning the building building. They're going to be overseeing the nursery. They're going to be ministering to the poor and to the suffering, which would include women. And so their wives need to be able to minister with them, and their wives would need to be above reproach, not gossiping, not telling their friends who's having problems. Faithful with money, faithful with information, faithful to complete tasks that have been given to them. And so it could be that the wives of the deacons by necessity of their work, need to be faithful 
in a way that may not be necessary for the elders' wives. That's one plausible view. The other, and I believe I prefer this view, is that these women in verse 11 are acknowledged female assistants to the deacons. They're not officers in the church. Uh, They bear no uh, ordained office. They are not ordained. They are not ordained by the laying on of hands. But they are recognized in front of the church as having been entrusted with some special responsibility in the body. Some special stewardship to perform in certain ministries under the supervision of the deacons and ultimately the elders. And I think this flows very nicely in the context of chapter 3. You have elders and overseers and the deacons who were an extension of the elders' hearts and minds and hands. And then here in verse 11, you have female assistants who are an extension of the deacons' minds and hearts and hands, completing tasks, bearing the extension of the deacons' work in the church. So in other words, because they have shown themselves faithful and have demonstrated godly character and skill in certain ways, they are delegated certain places of responsibility that are best carried out by women. A nursery. Organizing women's events. Secretarial duties. Other responsibilities that are best carried out by women. These would fall under this category. And I think this view helps us make sense of Phoebe from Romans 16.1. Listen to how Paul speaks about Phoebe. He says, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or a deaconess, could be translated, of the church at Syncria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe has proven herself a faithful servant of the Lord in her church and she's proven herself faithful to Paul. And she's been given a special responsibility, possibly even carrying Paul's letter to the Romans. And it seems like she's been recognized by some in this manner as having been entrusted with some particular task. And so it seems that the the apostle envisions that there will be godly sisters in the church who do not have an office, who are not ordained, but who are recognized before the church as being competent in certain areas, who are faithful, who are godly, who can serve as an extension of the deacon's ministry. And none of that, we should celebrate that, but none of that leads to the conclusion that these sisters need an office in the church to do such ministry. And I want to conclude here with verse 13. He says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Guys, the office of deacon is a high calling. It's a high calling and it is worthy of much respect. You know, those who serve well as deacons, they will gain great respect in the church. They will. They will be highly esteemed. They will be held in honor before the saints. Not only that, but they will grow in assurance of their salvation as they perform the work of 
the ministry and in their confidence before the Lord. You know, we talk about this a lot around here. We are not justified by our good works. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, good works go a long way in strengthening our assurance in the Lord. And our hearts are increasingly encouraged in confidence as we bear fruit and as we serve. Now listen to chapter 16, paragraph 2 in the Second London Confession on good works. It says this, These good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, listen, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. And deacons, by nature of their office, have the privilege of being able to consistently and constantly serve the church and perform ministry and increase their assurance of salvation and encourage their brothers and sisters and bear fruit for eternity. Any brother who has served as a deacon for any length of time knows that their ministry is rarely, if ever, flashy. And they definitely know that there is a great disparity between the service and the work and the time and the labor that they uh, do and the amount of thanks that they receive for doing the work. There's a great disparity there. And now I think we should try to uh, limit that disparity. I think we should honor our deacons. We should praise them for what God is doing in them. We should honor them. Uh, but here's the thing while probably 95% of what servants in the church do goes unseen, the Lord sees everything. He sees everything. And I'm reminded of the words of our Lord from the Sermon on the Mount when He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That is a great promise for all of us to cling to, especially deacons. And the last thing I want to say is this. You know, while the word deacon or servant did become an official office in the church, it does not negate the fact that the whole church, the whole body, is to be a functioning diaconate. We are all to serve. God has given each of us gifts and graces and ability and time and treasure to serve the body in various ways. Ways And I want to commend you, brothers and sisters, many of you have served countless hours in this church in various ways. And on behalf of John Mark and myself, thank you. You have. You've borne many burdens. And only the Lord knows sometimes when no one else is up here 
the Lord knows how many hours and how much work you have put into serving this church. And we are very thankful for your uh, ministry. And I want to exhort all of us, but especially members, uh, there is a lot to do around here. And there is great opportunity to bear fruit for eternity through serving the church in this way. Whether you're an official deacon or just a brother or sister in the church using his or her gifts to best bless the body, take advantage of the opportunity. Take advantage of the great privilege that it is to serve Christ's bride. You get to serve the church. You get to serve the church. It is a privilege. Grow in confidence before the Lord and gain eternal treasure for heaven. Amen? All right. Well, I'm going to transition us now uh, to the table where we think about how Christ has served us through His life and death for us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you profess with your mouth that He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you have professed that publicly through baptism. Uh, please come and take the supper with us. Uh, and if not, if you will be refraining, there are some prayers that you can pray in your bulletin during this time. Take a few moments there. Think about how Christ has served you. Renew your mind in the Gospel. Confess sin if you need to. And when you are ready, uh, let's come to the table full of joy, full of happiness and the hope of the Gospel and all that we've been meditating on today. Take the elements and return to your seats and we'll take it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wisdom that You have given us in Your Word regarding organizing and structuring Your church. We thank You for the diaconate, Lord. And we thank You that You have been our ultimate deacon. Lord, You did not come to be served, but to serve and to give Your life as a ransom for many. We thank You for that. Help us to renew our minds in the Gospel now as we come to the table. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.